my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. To ride an idea that you believed in with a group of people who were making no money and have it turn into a worldwide phenomena, I mean, it was incredible. All of a sudden, you know, you couldn't get arrested and then, you know, you're being wined and dined everywhere. Welcome to this episode of Math and Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. I'm Bob Pittman. On this podcast, we explore the creative and data analytics side of marketing and how business people and entrepreneurs use that magic mix to help them find success. Today's guest is an old friend who I have known and admired for most of my adult working life, Tom Preston. Tom is totally unique in the media and entertainment business. He has this ability to bridge the sort of wildly new, untamed creatives with the establishment and often helps each group understand each other and sometimes even creates ventures together. He was the first person to tell me about Vice, for example, and even gave me an opportunity to invest in it in the beginning. I stupidly did not take his advice, 
But Tom had spotted something that few of us could have grasped, except him back then, and he has done that countless times in his career. Tom owned a business based in Afghanistan back in the 70s, came back to the U.S. It was on the original team that built MTV. When I left MTV in 1987, Tom succeeded me as CEO of MTV Networks, and he and his team, which included Judy McGrath, who's been on the podcast before, took MTV to heights none of us would have ever imagined. We had gone public briefly. We lost in that LBO. Viacom bought it pre-Sumner Redstone. Shortly after they bought it, in Tom's time at the top, Sumner Redstone effectively bought Viacom. And he did so because he had Tom's support. Ironically, decades later, in one of the strangest moments in corporate history, Tom left Viacom because of Sumner. We'll get to that later. Tom went on to explore his two great passions, travel to places in the world filled with wonder, and his other love, nurturing creatives and helping them find success and protecting their ideas. Welcome, Tom. Nice to be here, Bob. Tom has some great stories, and we'll get to those in a minute, Tom. But first, we want to do you in 60 seconds. So here we go. Do you prefer vanilla or chocolate? Vanilla. Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. The real world or the Osbournes? The Osbournes. Wine or tequila? Tequila. MTV News or Vice? Vice. New York or L.A.? L.A. Madonna or Cindy Lauper? Madonna. Andy Warhol or Andy Rooney? Andy Warhol. It's about to get harder. You ready? Secret talent? Photographer. Favorite city? London. Favorite color? Blue. Career highlight? Working with you in MTV those years. Ooh, I love that, huh? Childhood hero? Tonto. <laughs> Favorite TV show? Andy Griffith. Best live concert you've ever seen? Live Aid, 1975. 85, excuse me. Quote to live by? Live free or die. Best thing about being you? I get to do whatever I want. Worst fad you participated in? The Macarena. (laughs) What would be the title of your memoir? Mr. Tom. Who would play you in a movie? Dustin Hoffman. What's one book, song, movie that changed you? On the road, Jack Kerouac. Last one. Who would you like to meet you haven't yet met? Ayatollah Khomeini. You're a brave man. Okay, let's dig in by going back to your beginning. You probably travel more than anyone I know, yet you grew up in a small Connecticut town, and you didn't travel much at all as a kid, as I remember. You were not in a very diverse community, but diversity has been a hallmark of your career. Your dad was a commuter, and you were the first person I knew who ever moved downtown. I think it was to Tribeca back when it was all commercial. You've always been the urban explorer. So what in that childhood brought you to this place? Why so many contrasts? I don't know. I grew up in uh, Rowayton, Connecticut. It was an all-white town. We didn't even have, forget, blacks or Italians. There was no Jews. It was very homogeneous. By the time I got to college, I'd only been in two states, New York and Connecticut. And I'd only had one trip in my life, which was a day trip to the Mystic Seaport with my father, who sort of suffered from PTSD from World War II and never wanted to go anywhere. So when I was 17, I headed off to college and just sort of never came back, always looking, you know, sort of for the road less traveled in a way. Was there anything in that upbringing that sort of led you to this? Or were you running away from something? Were you gathering something? Or is there something that gives you strength from that era? I think I was sort of running away for the conformity of suburban New York City, and I was running away in the end from what I saw as a kind of boring organization man life. What lessons did you take from those days? Anything that when you think about business or think about your family that you learned there that you repeat again and again? 
Well, I would watch my father and his friends who were largely involved in the marketing advertising business. They were sort of like the madman, cocktail party, the whole drill. And I saw how hard everyone worked. I also saw how some of his friends who were in the more creative advertising world actually got a lot of enjoyment out of their work because they had something to do with the creative process. So that was sort of a gene that stayed in the back of my head. I was always trying to figure out where would I fit in in the business world. I wasn't an artist per se. I wasn't a writer or a musician, but I wanted to always be around creative people. My first grown-up jobs essentially were working in an ad agency. You went off to college in Vermont in the 60s. You paid for school through a variety of jobs. I remember you telling me about some of the things you did. Tell us some of those wonderful jobs. I've done every menial job imaginable. <laughs> but when I was in college, I used to do everything from run the student cafeteria, became the head waiter at one point. I would work washing dishes. I would sweep the floors of hospitals. I would deliver snacks to people's rooms at night from a place called Frosty Stein, where people would break into my car and steal the other order I had in my car when I was delivering one. It was <laughs> filled with frustration, but I, I worked really hard. I made more money in college. When I left college, I was probably making less for a couple of years than I was when I was there. When did the 60s subculture find you? Well, I was 18 years old the day President Kennedy was shot, 1963. In my mind, that's sort of the days that the 60s began. For me, the first view I really had of the 60s was the summer of 1965. I had listened to someone who had come back from the year before from Lake George, New York, and had worked at this, what was then a sort of thriving resort where a lot of young people would come and work for the summer. And it was there that I went and got a job as a bellhop and then as a bartender. I ran into a lot of young people my age who weren't necessarily in college. They would work in Aspen in the wintertime. They would come work in Lake George in the summertime. It's the first time I'd really seen people outside of the normal career track. They smoked pot. They would travel, and the town was just filled with rock and roll bands. This is the first glimpse into Bohemia. I kind of just jumped in head first. And then I moved to New York City to go to college, to go to graduate school, and that was sort of, you know, 1967, moving into the East Village. I was right in the middle of it all. So you went to college, though, in New York, at NYU, to get an MBA. Right. Now, this is well before people got an MBA. This was the 60s. Why did you get an MBA? In 1967, I was going to graduate college. They said, hey, you know, you're going to get drafted and go to Vietnam really quickly, and you better think of somewhere else to go to get a student deferment. I didn't want to go to medical school. I didn't want to go to dental school or law school. Is there any school I could go to? They said, well, you can go to business school. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I mean, I was really behind the curve there. So I applied and got into a couple of business schools and went to NYU. I did two years straight it was really the Vietnam War drove me to business school. After getting your MBA, instead of going to somewhere like McKenzie, you became a bartender in the Caribbean, Colorado, Martha's Vineyard. Was that the beginning of the wanderlust? And why do that rather than jump into work? Well, I wasn't ready. I, I figured I'd been to school for, uh, you know, 18 years. I was ready to kind of stretch out. I, I wanted to kind of join those people whose life I had admired back in Lake George. My first job was to go to Aspen. when I became a dishwasher. But I wanted to be free. I had never really driven across the country. I'd never really almost been anywhere. So that really whet my appetite for things that were to come, much to my parents' chagrin at the time, because they assumed, of course, well, now you're going to get a grown-up job. So now we get to Tom Preston in business. You jump in feet first at the legendary ad agency, Benton & Bowles. You worked on G.I. Joe and Charmin, but I guess it didn't seem like the place for you. Why? 
Well, my first account there I worked on was G.I. Joe. Now, mind you, this was sort of at the height of the Vietnam War, and I was in an alienated state <laughs> to begin with, let alone doing that for a living. It was uh, an interesting learning time to see sort of being a big ad agency to see how it all worked, how all the pieces came together. But when they were going to assign me to uh, Charmin Toilet Paper, that was sort of my last straw. I said, I, I'm not going to do this. I called an ex-girlfriend who lives in Paris. I said, you know, I'm really, I'm really bombed. They want, they want me to work on a toilet paper account where they had segmented the population into rollers, folders, and, <laughs> and crumplers. And she says, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You should quit that job. Don't be a moron. Come with me. I'm going to go across the Sahara Desert. I'm in Paris. So I was on a plane like 10 days later. That was it for me. You had saved enough money. I had like $5,000. That was a lot of money at the yeah, time. Yeah, it sure was. So, you wind up with Hindu Kush, your clothing line. How did you get there from, I'm going to go walk across the Sahara to you start your own clothing line based in Afghanistan? We split up. We crossed the Sahara. I have said about traveling throughout Africa and then into Europe. And uh, I met a girl in Greece who she was selling all these cool clothes on the beach in Mykonos to these German tourists. And she would go in the winter and make these clothes in India and Nepal and bring them back. I kind of lodged that in the back of my head. But she convinced me to go to India. So many months later, I, I went on overland to India, basically hitchhiked through Iran, Afghanistan, ended up in India. The day I went across the Afghan border, my life sort of changed because I said, wow, this place is just terrific. The guy at immigration, he was wearing an Akran band high school jacket as his uniform. I said, this is a country that's as far away from New York as I would find. And I set about figuring out how I could survive and live there. The only way I was going to do it was to start a business. And at that point in time, globalism, I was sort of in the front row for globalism because air freight was starting out. You could make something in New Delhi or in Kabul for $5 and sell it the next day for $25 in New York. So I set up a business. I had friends at Vogue and Mademoiselle and Bloomingdale's. I built factories. I acquired partners in both New Delhi and Kabul. I had houses how, there. How on earth did you know how to do this? I didn't know anything. How did you get it done? Just through hard work. I realized at one point that nothing I ever will do in my life will ever be harder than this. There were so many things that could go wrong. The people you had to bribe, there's strikes, there's all kinds of issues. But I enjoyed it. We were very successful. We would design clothes. It was sort of contemporary. Oh, I remember clothes. the clothes. They were very hip. And uh, they were cool. And uh, we would do trade shows. And I was selling into the United States and then the UK and Australia. And it became a multi-million dollar business. And I was I was living like a pasha in uh, New Delhi and in Kabul. It was fantastic. And I got to travel, which was my initial goal. I got pretty much to go almost everywhere. India had 14 states in those days. I hit every one of them. It was exhilarating, made a lot of money, had no idea what I was doing, but I applied a lot of basic marketing principles and stuff I had picked up along the way. And, you know, you could learn by observing others. And next thing you know, you're just figuring something out. And it was just a longer supply chain than usual. Competitively, I was like the only American doing this almost at the time. I would hire designers. They would come and live and stay with me. And we made a good product. It's very cool. So let's jump. All of it came to an end. The Russians invaded Afghanistan. Jimmy Carter, who's the president at the time, put restrictions on yeah, the Jimmy goods. Carter. And so you came back to the U.S. You were hired by Warner MX Satellite Entertainment Corporation, the company owned by American Express and Warner Communications that would eventually become MTV Networks. We were both originally brought to the company for other jobs, by the way, before the MTV development even began by the incredibly charismatic John Lack, who had this wonderful affliction. He liked to hire people for roles they had never had before. And you and I benefited <laughs> from that. 
although John left about a year after MTV started, I think it is safe to say we would not have had MTV while there's strong support and, and advocacy. And I do want to give him a shout out here. But you got in here. The cable revolution wasn't even recognized as being a revolution yet. What did you think you were getting into? I mean, this was still sort of Mickey Mouse compared to the uh, TV business. I thought I was getting into one of the greatest ideas that had ever come around. I had spent parts of the summers in Europe, and I was familiar with the music video, which were largely unknown to American audiences, and they, they were infectious. And when I was driven out of Asia, I thought, whatever I do next, I want it to be something that I also love deeply, and that was music. So I methodically looked around getting a job in the music business. Through connections, I ended up in John Lack's office, and I told him I thought this is a fantastic idea. He says, we're looking for people who have no experience in television. I said, I'm your man. They didn't even have television where I've been living the last eight years. So I thought MTV, like all of us on the team, was really one of the great ideas. And all of us were essentially on a crusade. We got paid nothing. It was the early 80s version of a startup. Very much so. And if you looked at the media environment then, nothing had really changed in years. The only thing that had come around new had been FM radio. There was still three TV networks. Pong was only a few years old. Remember, we used to say, we're going to do to FM what FM did to AM. That was our big claim. <laughs> 25 channels in the home. Can you exactly. imagine? It was a very small group of us that began developing MTV. We did not have approval to do it. I got a small budget to put together a plan. You were the only one with the real marketing background. I was happy to have a job. <laughs> Come on, I couldn't believe anyone was going to hire me. We did start the channel, and it was a great consumer success. But a business failure, as, by the way, were all the cable networks of the day. Of course, that failure was good for you and me. It led to me being the COO and eventually the CEO and you moving up to run everything with affiliate sales all the way to GM of the service and finally CEO. Did it sort of seem like it was all falling in place or was this all luck or were you ambitious and saying, I'm working it all? I was ambitious. And I was highly motivated for this to succeed. I thought that MTV and then, of course, Nickelodeon and Nick at Night and the rest of the things, I just thought we were in this TV revolution. We had the wind at our back. It was all going to come true. It was too good of an idea to fail. You know, a lot of life is about timing and luck. And I had somehow ended up once again in the right place at the right time. And this was sort of my destiny. I was going to meet my opportunity. What you did, you know, I would say my time there, we really proved it was a business. We're the first cable network to make a profit, but it was really you and your team, including Judy McGrath, who built MTV and the other networks into this incredible media giant. What drove that and where did that vision come from and how did you get there? As a compliment to you, Bob, I mean, you are the guy who always keep your eye on the consumer, find out what the consumer wanted. We would always see this research. The consumer wanted what we were selling and we could tune it up a bit. And we also had this sort of slightly subversive underground feel and yes, you know, you there did. was nothing really around like that. And we would continue to launch new networks, Comedy Central or TV Land. And insofar as taking it around the world, the whole international world of television began to deregulate in the late 80s. All these countries really only had state TV pretty much, as you know. So the confidence I had built from my years living in Afghanistan and India was actually very transferable because I really knew we could go anywhere and do anything. And if we could go to Europe, we could go to Asia, we could go to Latin America. So we built really the first worldwide television networking company. And we rolled out not just MTV, but also Nickelodeon and Comedy Central, and a lot of others right down through Africa. But then realizing along the way, if we could develop IP and own it, like SpongeBob or Rugrats or Beavis and Butthead, we could get into things like feature films, consumer product licensing, and build a 
a really big business. So the business gradually evolved from one where we would package other people's product, like a music video, to where we would increasingly own what we did. But at the heart of it all was a creative machine, which again was something that you put in at the inception of the company. A lot of focus was on creating a culture that would attract creative people. They would want to come and live there. I mean, we'd have at one point Judd Apatow or Ben Stiller or John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, you know, Adam Sandler would like be sleeping in the offices sometimes. It was a hothouse atmosphere. You were probably the first talent incubator. I don't think they called them that back then. How did you pull that together? Because it is really remarkable, the people you had that came through MTV and Nickelodeon and people who started their careers there, you gave them the shot. Well, a lot of it is sort of what's the vibe of the place. We always wanted to make room for deviancy. I would always say, who's the oddball person? Who's the intern who's going to come running in with an idea like, Yo MTV Raps, that was like a 21-year-old intern who came up with a demo in his basement. You know, we give creative people a lot of freedom. Because we had these networks, there was a lot of room for experimentation. Everything you made didn't have to be really tightly organized. There was a lot of room for improvisation and innovation. If you have a hallmark for that, people would want to step up and follow it. So you just try and have good standards, provide guardrails for people, celebrate risk. How did you build that culture across the different networks? What's remarkable is you not only had this cultural fit with MTV, but you had that same sort of innovation, yet a different cultural fit with Nickelodeon and a different one with VH1. I want to make creativity the primary aptitude of the organization. So what I try and do is put the person who ran the network, a creative person that would send a signal to the organization. That was a value we prize most. And if that creative person could make the connection with what they did with the consumer, a lot of the business stuff would kind of fall together. But in some cases, you'd hire a business person, but that business person had to be seen as a fan. I'm a business affairs guy, and now I have this job, and I want to know, I think you people create the value. I'm not creating the value in deals that I do, but it's what you guys make. And by the way, I know what you're talking about because I am deeply immersed in the popular culture. The fact that we made a lot of stuff ourselves and didn't just farm it out, you had actual creative directors and producers and people there. Most TV networks, they would just farm stuff out to production companies. You are known for creativity. You're sort of the crazy guy that sets this wonderful culture. But I know you use a lot of research and insights. How do you fit the research and the insights into something that's sort of that creative? I never talked about business to anybody. Whenever we would speak to creative people, maybe this is because the business was always going so good we didn't have to, but we would never really talk about how much revenue came in or how much we're off our budget, and we would celebrate any kind of creative triumph. So that also kind of reinforced the notion that we are a creative-first organization. Just hold on a second, because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com customer to claim your credit. 
That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Tom Freston. When we launched MTV, you were the head of marketing. The cable operator wouldn't put MTV on. They wanted us to pay them. One, we didn't have the money. And two, that was probably a slippery slope. And so we decided we would use a pull strategy to get distribution. I want my MTV. Tell me the evolution of how that came down, because that's clearly one of the legendary ad campaigns of the past 30 or 40 years. Well, it was sort of a Hail Mary pass because, you know, we were about to go under. I mean, I didn't talk about not talking about business. No one in the organization knew we were about to right. go under. So how are we going to get these cable operators to add us when we knew, in fact, that the people who actually had it in the few towns where it existed, they loved it. They were fanatical about it. 
Back then, music was the centerpiece of culture. So there was a very strong emotional button you could push. So the idea is if we could get major rock stars in a commercial to kind of hold our logo, validate it, hold it, and command people to call their cable company and demand their MTV, make it look cool, put some animation around it, and then put it in these markets at very high frequency. We go into a market and it'd be like a blockbuster movie was opening. Most people in the market had never heard of MTV. Next thing you know, every cable operator, if there were 11 of them in a market, which would not be unusual in time, they'd all call up and surrender. So we would move it market by market for a couple of years across the country, going from like what was 7 million subscribers ended up being 80 or 90 million. Well, there's a lesson in this too that you've always done very, very well, which is harnessing the power of partners. And in the case of I Want My MTV music stars who are willing to be in the commercial for free to help us accomplish our goals, but you also have music companies and others. Talk to me a little bit about how you harness that kind of power of partners and how you think about partners in business. In that business, in almost any business, partners were essential. But just say on the music side, our partners were the record companies and the artists. And, you know, in any partnership, someone had to give something. And the most important thing to a record company was to be able to take an artist out of nowhere and sort of what they would say, break him and make him popularized to some extent. And MTV was like the tool to do that. And there was a lot of competition to get videos on the air when MTV was in its prime. What's your real priority, Mr. Record Company? We'll take care of you. But in return, we want a few things, too. There was an example there when we used the power of a fighting brand. When Ted Turner came after MTV, we were just ready to go public and barely got out public because he announced in face of it with the cable music channel. And we fronted the battle with our fighting brand VH1 at the time. We invented VH1 to go against Ted Turner, tell me a little bit about that story, because you were right smack dab in the middle of that. That was a classic fighting brand thing you would have seen in the world of package goods, like back in my days working at Procter & Gamble in an ad agency where you're trying to thwart a new competitor. Well, Ted Turner wanted to come in and basically pee in our parade. He said he was going to launch a music channel that played like none of the devil's music. (laughs) Let me say first that the cable music channel lasted 101 days on the air and he had to fold up and go home. But we decided we can't let this happen. And if there's going to be a second music channel, we should have a second music channel. And we made the case to cable operators, we have a second music channel. You don't want to add the Ted Turner channel because that's just going to go head to head against the one you already have. Add VH1, which we call the very hot one at the time, because it would be more compatible and it would play artists for another demo. And we would sell it to you on a combo basis. Basically, it was free if you already had MTV. So he couldn't get distribution. And he'd already kind of denigrated us image-wise by putting himself in some kind of a Christian rock station. And we strangled him in terms of not being able to get distribution, therefore no advertising, no revenue, no light on the end of the tunnel. And he went out of business and we went forward. Let's jump to the evolution of MTV and building this amazing brand. You led the jump from just music videos to long-form programs, including in the process the invention, if you will, really, of reality TV. Why? How? Well, there's a couple of factors there. One was our in-house creative force, in a way, was always looking to do more and do more and create and do more stuff. So packaging hours of 10 different music videos, they were always looking for ways to put new spins on that and so forth. The other thing was that the music video format was beginning to wane. And as we were bigger, our audience ratings on which we sold advertising was beginning to crater. And unless we put some spikes in there, we could see ourselves sort of on a road to some kind of oblivion. We couldn't just innovate it by shuffling the music mix or changing things. That was clear. We tried everything. We just couldn't play the top 10 videos all day long. 
So we thought we would follow a strategy that we'd seen Rolling Stone utilize successfully, which was when there's lulls in the music business, they would be talking about movies or comedy. David Letterman would be on the cover. We could be about a lot of the things the music was about and still keep our music first image, fashion with Cindy Crawford, and we decided to beef up our music news rather than just make it sort of a throwaway. We brought in Kurt Loder, incredible journalist, and we'd put shows on the air. And when we put a show on the air, the ratings would be two to three times higher than just running music videos. We would also try and refresh the look, the feel, and the style of a network every three or four or five years because the demo kind of passes it through it, so we'd reinvent it. So there was always new shows coming around. We would add shows on packaged music and like on hip-hop music with the OMTV raps and so forth. And it kind of came down to the real world. That was in 1993. And that was like, well, we've tried everything else. We should probably do a soap opera because young people are interested in what other young people are doing. So they came in with a presentation to me and we had to hire writers. And I said, well, you know, we don't have any money to hire writers, so we can't do this. So then Doug Herzog came back and said, you know, we're really good at post-production. That's our major skill. What if we just rented a loft in Soho and stuck some cameras in there and bring these kids in and then let them live and then we'll post it afterwards and make it into a show. And that was, that was sort of the birth of reality TV. It was an idea that was not born of brilliance, but born of cheapskateness. <laughs> MTV was always embedded in the youth culture. And as a matter of fact, you and I years ago had the discussion about should we grow old with this audience or should we give up this audience and continue to get a new mm -hmm. audience to be the voice of young America? You took it seriously. I think you also, in terms of being the voice of young America, also represented their desire to do good and make a difference. I was there for Live Aid, Farm Aid, some of that, but you took it much broader, much deeper than any TV network had ever dared. Choose or Lose, which you won a Peabody Award for, Rock the Vote, programming about LGBTQ rights, substance abuse, gun violence, health, gender, and more. What was the philosophy? What drove you? We knew it was important to our audience. I also knew it was extremely important to the employee base. Employees would feel better about working there if they knew we had some kind of social purpose associated with what we would do. And we had 168 hours a week. We could certainly squeeze it in. It also turned out, like with Choose or Lose, for example, it legitimized us in the eyes of advertisers who formerly wouldn't come near us like American Express. But most importantly, the audience liked it. I would ask every network to come up with a couple of social purpose campaigns a year. So it really became part of the DNA of the company. So before we get to Tom Preston 3.0, let's hit Sumner Redstone. He says he took control of Viacom way back when, 1987, because of a dinner he had with you and Jerry Laybourne. When he took over, I think it's fair to say you and MTV Networks were now the center of Viacom. You were the star. Fast forward decades later, after you did this wonderful solid, Sumner has made you first co-CEO of Viacom, then CEO of Viacom when he split Viacom and CBS. You were the guy. And then all of a sudden, or at least it appeared to be all of a sudden, it's reported that he's furious you didn't buy MySpace and actually fires you. Shocks the industry and alienates him from the creative community and clearly makes you this martyr hero or whatever. Is that really what came down? But sort of. You know, I was sort of shocked. I had had two incidents with him that didn't go well. I had become the CEO of the new Viacom public company. That included Paramount pictures and the MTV networks and a few other businesses. And I had had a fight with him over MySpace. We were looking to morph ourselves into the digital world with some acquisitions. And we were looking at MySpace 
as a possibility. They were then the social network leader. Right, I remember. Facebook was really just still they, only for they college killed students. Friendster. That was the fake. Friendster was dead, and it was the Facebook. So one weekend when we were talking to the folks out in California, Rupert Murdoch came in like on a high horse over a weekend, and he bought it with no due diligence or anything for $570 million. Sumner thought that was a great defeat. He won the Charlie Rose show saying, you know, I've been totally disgraced. Meanwhile, Rupert Murdoch now has his pictures on magazine as a new media hero. And Sumner's real competitor in life was Rupert Murdoch. And Rupert Murdoch showed him up and made me look bad. I also had had my first fight with him a couple of weeks before that, which was over Tom Cruise. He decided he was going to fire Tom Cruise and called a press conference to his house because Tom Cruise had been jumping up and down on Oprah's couch. And he thought Tom Cruise had to go. And I said, you can't fire him. He doesn't work for us, first of all. <laughs> but that was a big screaming match that didn't go down well. And then a couple of weeks later on Labor Day, he brought me over to his house and fired me. And I was like, wow. This is after 20 years of working with him of continual growth and performance. So I was kind of shocked, I must say. It turned out to be a blessing. A blessing, for sure. It was, it was the best way to go. Well, I had been there 26 years overall, so it was a quarter of a century as a time to turn the page. Well, also, as a friend who watched you closely, you had an obligation, and I think it's safe to say you would have never felt like you could leave MTV Networks or Viacom uh, through that sense of obligation, and he freed you, and you went on to be Tom Preston 3.0. Yeah. Let's get into that. Before we do that, did some ever thank you for not getting MySpace? <laughs> No. When Rupert Murdoch sold it for $35 million, I saw his daughter. I'm still waiting for a thank you note, but it never <laughs> came. When this happened, I remember the time you were totally in demand. You turned down great job after great job to run companies. You refused to go that route. Why? First thing I did was just do nothing. Sometimes you see people get fired from a job, and then the next thing you know, they're working the next day somewhere else. But I decided I would let things come into focus a bit. And I realized that I'm going to work with people that I like on things I'm really passionate about. I was never a mainstream business guy. I had a business out of Afghanistan, India. When you hired me at MTV, this was a fringy underground startup. And I basically was there and built it. It was like we had equity. And this is, it was the nexus of all the things I loved, animation, music, film. So I really felt like it was sort of partially my company. I didn't feel like being grafted onto the top of a company like, say, a Yahoo or something. It just didn't turn me on. And I felt... The last two business chapters in my life have been things I was really passionate about. I didn't feel that. Then I just said, well, maybe I could have another type of life and have a more portfolio approach. Instead of taking a single big job, I could do a bunch of different things. And that's essentially what I've been doing, four or five or six different types of things. So one with Bono, you spent a lot of time on that. How did that happen? Well, I had built up a relationship with him over the years. I mean, U2 and MTV kind of came up together. The day after I got fired, I was in L.A. He called me on the phone. He just said, hey, why don't you come run Red? I said, no. No, he said he had Bill Gates calling me and Steve Jobs saying I should take this job. So he kind of got my interest up. But I said, no, I'm not going to do anything right now. A few months later, his manager implored me to come and meet with him in France. I fell in love with what they were doing met this whole other group of young people who were activists. They were in a whole different world from any young people I had worked with before. And I said I would stay on as the board chair, and I've been doing that for 12 years. The one campaign, we've got 10 million members, which also includes RED, which has raised you know, almost $700 million for the Global Fund for HIV-AIDS. Amazing. I know you were advising Oprah for a while. Mm -hmm. You were at Moby Group? Moby Group. That was the first thing I did. I went back to Afghanistan. And brought TV to Afghanistan and now all over station. the world? Yeah. 
I essentially went back to work in Afghanistan several months a year to teach people how to run a TV network, which was totally exhilarating and really full circle for me. The network itself was really a platform for social change. They never really had it. Plugged them into the outside world, connected them with each other, you know, gender equality, all those types of things. Despite the fact that the war is still going on, I mean, their business is still relatively unaffected, which shows you the power. And they're going around the world now, right? We had a network in Iran. We've had to shut down. We had one in Yemen. We've had to shut down. We have one in Ethiopia, which is really exciting. One of my favorite countries in Africa that's doing well. They just opened up their economy to a lot of things, including private media. So Afghanistan and Ethiopia are the two main businesses. Vice. I'd never heard of Vice until you told me about it. You spotted that really early, did an investment. What did you see there? And I know you're still helping them. And what do you think the future there is? Well, I saw there was a, another youth brand, you know, a good, strong youth brand. They really kind of come from the streets. I mean, MTV basically was a startup with a lot of people from the streets, even though we had two parents who didn't really care and know about us. We kind of went off and did that. Vice started off as a magazine in 1993 in Toronto. They started off doing really edgy stuff and they would distribute it free in boutiques and they would distribute like a million copies of this in all these countries. And at one point, Shane Smith, who's this early leader of Vice, he realized that when YouTube came around in 19, uh, 2006, that this was a big change, that that was a platform that was going to go into people's home with video. And if he could take their storytelling ability that they had sort of got with a good ear on the ground in their magazine and translate it into video, working with Spike Jones and other people, they could create a business. So I went on their board, invested with them. I still work with them. I think they built a great news brand on HBO. They've had like 33 Emmy nominations. If you add it up, they had like 300 million users worldwide. Half their business is outside the country. They've got, at its heart, a creative enterprise again. As we begin to wrap up, let's focus on a couple of big lessons. How can you grow a hip and cool company into being the establishment? and yet avoid becoming the man. You're one of the few people who've done that. You try and uh, you know, stay close to your roots. I mean, I was never a mainstream guy. I never aspired to be a Fortune 500 CEO or have a mainstream business. And I felt that a lot of our businesses were successful because they kind of had like whiskers on them in a way. They were, they were sort of <laughs> mainstream. They were always a little underground, but we were sort of ahead of our time. So I always tried to keep people focused on, we're, we're not as big as we think we are. We're going to stay humble. We're going to reinvent, reinvent, reinvent. And my gut was, I just never wanted to be a traditional businessman in my soul. I still don't. How did you spot great ideas and how do you still spot great ideas? And how do you spot the great new talent? A lot of it's an instinctual. If you're trying to do something in the youth culture, it's really about who are you going to hire who really has their ear to the ground because it's a young world and no matter how uh, up to date you think you are, you're really sort of out of it. I would see this happen in the music business, for example, with David Geffen, who had excellent ear for artists in the 70s and in the 60s. But then in the 80s, he began to falter and he had an epiphany. I'm going to hire good A&R guys who know what they're doing. So how do you... You're post-70 now. Managed to stay so connected to the youth culture and fresh ideas, which I think everyone would agree you do, and do it remarkably well. I still read voraciously everything I get my hands on. Listen to everything I can. It's hard these days, as the music has kind of moved into silos and the middle's disappeared. All the publications and places we used to rely upon to find out what's new. you got to like look deeper, but you know, as you get into things like Spotify and iHeart, 
Do you use social? I'm just, I just use Instagram. I kind of think Facebook's sort of like the Frankenstein monster of our age. I've seen firsthand what it's done in other countries, like in Burma with the Rohingyas, where it's the sole news source. It can be really hijacked by people. But Instagram's fun. Of all the things I've done in my career, MTV is certainly unique. And a small band of us made an impact together. We were at the dawn of our careers. You, Judy McGrath, John Sykes, Fred Seibert, Mark Booth, and I were recently inducted into the cable Hall of Fame as the MTV founders. Is the MTV early days of starting it when the odds were against us, that a special part for you too? That was the best part. I love my years in Afghanistan and India. That was making something out of nothing. But to ride an idea that you believed in with a group of people who were making no money and have it turn into a worldwide phenomena, I mean, it was incredible. All of a sudden, you know, you couldn't get arrested and then, you know, you're being wined and dine everywhere. People were beating a path through our door. It was a fantastic time. We always wrap up the podcast. With the same note we began, math, the insights and data, and magic, the creativity that's built on those insights and excites consumers and fans. Think about it for a second. Who's the greatest math person you know or have known? There's no single person I suppose I could point to, Bob, whose name I could associate with being a great data master. So let's move to the magic side. Who's the greatest show person, the magician that just seems to be able to take a germ of an idea and turn it into something brilliant? Well, I don't think you'll ever be able to beat Steve Jobs. I mean, Steve Jobs was a master of everything. Like they say, to create something that no one seemed to want, if you were doing research about it, you never would have done it. But then this comes to you perfectly packaged and then, you know, improved upon repeatedly with product after product. He would be number one and number two in my book. Tom, you are one of a kind, wonderful friend. Thanks for joining us and thanks for the stories. Hey, thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Here are a few things I picked up from my conversation with Tom. One, one of the keys to Tom's creative success has been telling his talent to stay humble and not get full of themselves. As he told the staff at MTV, we're gonna stay humble, we're gonna reinvent, reinvent, reinvent. Two, according to Tom, great ideas can come out of cheapskateness, as he puts it. The real world would have been a traditional soap opera if MTV had had the money, but instead, less money forced the company to get creative and invent reality TV. Three, one of Tom's big realizations was that Viacom could be a bigger company if it created its own IP. By owning things like SpongeBob, Rugrats, and Beavis and Butthead, it allowed the company to get into feature films and licensing and make a bigger business. Four, it's such simple advice, but Tom stays on top of trends by reading everything he can get his hands on. It's how he keeps up with trends, and it's how he discovered Vice before so many others did. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts 
of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.